Admittedly, this is no slick podcast setup. I get one chance at doing this because as soon as I press stop, Substack just goes and publishes it. I'm going to have to learn how to podcast. But in the meantime, here I am. I'm sitting in a dark room just before 0500. Everything and everyone's still sleeping. I've made myself a big mug of a chaga coffee mix with a hearty dollop of cream. My mammoth beeswax candle is lit and spreading warm love. I've started both fires in the wood stoves downstairs, and I'm staring at this little green button telling me to record. It's a little frightening, that button. I want to just take a second and thank you all for your beautiful, thoughtful questions. So many of them brought me to tears. You're such a thoughtful, interesting group of people. Reading your words made me want to be sitting in a room with y'all, lounging on pillows wrapped in wool around our fire, just listening and learning from you, too. To just hold energetic space, look into your faces when you speak. It all sounds so luxurious. I'll make you a hot brew in a chunky mug molded with real hands. I'll even fluff your pillows. Will you come? Maybe that's still to be. In the meantime, you're here with me in spirit, truly. I'll start with the first question I received and go from there. I won't be able to answer everything in one shot, but if this goes okay, I will endeavor to squirrel away some time to go through the rest. Please don't add any more questions to the last batch. I'll do another of these in the future if you guys like them. On a final note, I've not sat down before this and formulated my answers. Nothing is written down except this little blurb. I realize that this means I will think back to what I said and kick myself for not adding this or that, but I resist the planning all the same. I want it to be as close to you and me having a conversation as possible. I trust that what bubbles up is what's supposed to be said. I also trust it won't be as smooth and polished as it would be if I wrote it all down. But life isn't like it like that, not in the raw, and I feel better when I keep it as close to real as possible. That said, there were so many wonderful questions here that they deserve whole essays in return. I've dog-eared many of your beautiful comments as inspiration for future posts. Thank you for inspiring me. Okay, so the first question is from Alex, and it's a three-part question. Uh, The first, she asks me to speak on death and how it ties back to life. Well, life is only as beautiful as it can be if we keep death close. Um, I'm right on that quite a bit, and actually I was writing on that extensively. late last year and early into this year um, before our our youngest daughter died. Um, And uh, I was actually speaking to a publishing house about that. I think that my strength lies in writing about it more than it does in speaking about it. Um, But in either case, speaking about it's just, I can't do that right now. So I will write about it more. And I, I, that's a, a huge part of my life. And um keeping uh death and life close is just the guiding principle of how i operate in this world so alex i will i'll i'll get back to that i will um the second part of Alex's question is saying that she or he, sorry, Alex, um, is currently stuck in a phase of knowing what needs to change in my life, but none of it is quite materialized. 
there's an element of patience and trust that I wasn't prepared for. And uh, when you've made major changes in your life, how did you process or go about being stuck in the in-between phase of where you're heading and where you've been? Such a good question. Oh, I was so impatient at that time. (laughs) Um, So I'm just, uh, you know, going back to that time when uh, my kids were small and there's, I was really consumed with um, mothering and, um, you know, all that that entails and uh, feeding my family and um, nurturing my family. Um, and, uh, at the same time, you know, trying to always be where I was with gratitude to, to love that time, uh, when my children were small and dependent, and sometimes that can be a struggle too, um, and to, to be patient with where I was, but holding such a a zeal and a desire to be and have and be doing things in a different way. That's, it's tough. And it's really tough to, to really just be able to be where you are and be grateful for that. And the only way that I've ever found that has been effective for me anyways, is to really cultivate gratitude, which I think sometimes sounds a little cliche, but it is what it is. And the only way I can do that is to really be in the place that I'm in. And I I still do that to this day. If I find myself sort of uneasy or antsy, I pull myself back to the moment that I'm in and look around and, and bring awareness to where I am and what I have in that moment. Um, I'll say in a, in a more, to make my answer a little more tangible um, for, I'm not specifically sure about where it is that you are and where you want to be. But um, for me, I'll just use myself as an example, saying I'm the only one that I can really speak for. Um, when our kids were small and uh, our budget was small and we were renting houses and uh moving from place to place uh when my husband was still in the military and then later uh he went back to school for another five more years um I could only do what I could do and so for me uh, I knew that I wanted to farm I knew I wanted to move back to the country um I had no idea how that was going to happen. It financially, it seemed impossible. Uh, logistically, it seemed pretty impossible. But um, I just poured myself into the things that I felt passionate about. Those were the things that I that held my interests, and um, I was. Uh, doing nutrition at the time and nutrition has always been a huge driver for me nutrition and health and um, we were raising our kids on a Weston A price diet which meant that I uh, was pretty uh, intricately tied to farmers in 
everywhere we moved, actually, when we would move from base to base, from province to province, the first thing I would do even before I got there was um, contact my Weston A. Price chapter leader. And I would find out the names of farms, I would contact the farmers and see what they had and see how they were raising things and set up times where I could go there and meet up with them. I'd go to these farms, I'd try to develop relationships with the farmers themselves. I would bring the kids with us always. We'd ask lots of questions. Um, and that sort of immersion into our food and into, uh, into building these relationships with the farmers was really um, integral to me feeling like I was getting closer to where I wanted to be. So Often I would volunteer on farms. I did everything from working in vegetable uh, gardens and realizing that really wasn't where uh, my passion lied. <laughs> Although I do like growing them, um, I much prefer uh, animal husbandry side of things. Um, I worked on many farms where... I took away all the things I didn't want to do or the things I didn't like. And then I started sort of honing my direction into the places uh, and the things that I did want to cultivate whenever it was that I was going to get my own farm. Um, I went to the library a lot and took out library books on, I mean, I was reading books on fencing and <laughs> um you know, haymaking and soil health and all these things. Um, it was just whatever it was. And I think that's the thing is just whatever it is that you're passionate about or you want to bring into your life, you can actually start bringing those pieces into your life. Um, before the before the actual dream comes to fruition, I think you kind of got to co-create that with the world or God or whatever word you want to use. I use God or creator. Um, yeah. And, and it's actually happening even though we can't quite see it. So mm, that's what I'd say to that. Um, the third part of the question is any thoughts on kids and our current society, things that need to be changed in our way of thinking, teaching and learning. Holy moly, Alex. Yes. So many thoughts, <laughs> but I have many questions, but um, kids in our current society, I just am so um, terribly sad by all of the children that are being raised without a connection to nature. Um, it really worries me that we're going to be asking this next generation to care for and protect and be awed by something that they don't know. I don't think it works like that. We, they need to have intimate relationships with nature and with the natural world so they understand its value they understand our value in it um as far as things that need to be changed in our thinking teaching and learning i think we've swung way too far uh to the other side of of sort of this whole helicopter protecting safety um focus of parenting um i think we need kids to be resilient and connected and thoughtful. I think we have to learn to 
raise children again that can problem solve and that can ask questions, not be told what questions to ask, but to really um, nurture their curiosity. It's, I think, so important. I love the idea of um, homeschooling, but homeschooling in a way that really allows a child to explore their curiosities and their passions and um, to help uh, guide them with that, but not um, make them adhere to a specific uh, doctrine of any sort. Um, yeah. So that might be enough for that. Um, so Naomi, Naomi's question is, I have endless questions as well. I would love for you to talk about sensory pleasure. You appear to be inhabiting your body more than most people do at the moment and also inhabiting the natural world around you. What can you share about pleasure? Hmm. That's such an interesting question. Um, I appear to be inhabiting my body more than most people do at the moment. I don't know. I, I feel like just spending time in silence in the natural world um, gives me the ability to do that. I don't think there's anything that I inherently do other than try to be present. Um, and by just, you know, sometimes going out into the forest and sitting down on a big hunk of quartz or granite that's jutting out of the ground and just sitting in silence. Um, so many things seem to happen and come to me and be around me. And um, I feel so deeply connected and loved and nurtured in that space that it teaches me to try and be that way in other places too, as, as best I can. I, I have been incredibly humbled uh, in the last year. I have been humbled to crumbs actually. And um, I think when you have that sort of humility, the kind that doesn't knocks out ego, it usually comes with a lot of pain. And when you have a lot of pain, any piece of pleasure or beauty is... really cherished and it feels so saturated it's just so delicious um delicious relief really and i um yeah i think in order to have that you have to be open to all the other stuff though you have to it doesn't work that you get to just look for and seek happy and beautiful and shiny. Um, I think you get into those places when you're just in the depths and the dark and 
you have to really feel and allow for everything, the shadow and the light. I've heard that so much through my life. And I think there was times I just wasn't able um, or didn't fully understand what that meant, maybe in pieces, but um, I can... I can understand that now. Anyway, that was a bit of a ramble, Naomi. I hope there was something in there worth something to you. Um, Tanya F. says, um, love this, Tara. I'm grateful for your work. Uh, like you, I've felt a wrongness since childhood. Everything is completely ours about face, as we Brits say. I love that. I'm going to use that. Sometimes I feel blind panic about it all. Why are we living like this? How can we escape? What world are my teens heading into? Holy boy. Your words about sovereignty brought me back into my own body. Thank you. My question is, are you familiar with the works of the late poet John O'Donoghue? I'm reading Anam Kara. I hope I said that right, right now. And it's the most gorgeous accompaniment to your writing. I will dig out a copy of Sacred Economics too. It's been gathering dust for, dust for too long. Tanya, I am not familiar with the late poet John O'Donohue, but I am going to highlight this and screenshot it, and I will be familiar. So thank you for sharing that with me. I love it when I get these little tidbits shared with me. I always try, endeavor to walk through the doors anyone opens for me. I find that I just it's fascinating. So thank you for sharing that with me. And um, sacred economics, I know I, I spoke to it, I wrote about it in a previous post. I, I highly recommend that if all of you can get it from your library or from wherever, it's just a phenomenal book by Charles Eisenstein. And um, it was actually given to me by my mentor um, many, many years ago. And it really reshaped the way I thought not only about money, but about our interaction and the way that we value each other and the way that we show that we value each other. And it's really just a profoundly beautiful book. So I highly recommend it to anyone else if they um, haven't read it yet. Um, Hannah, uh, the next question, Hannah says, thank you for writing and opening up the comments. Um, on my journey to becoming useful to my clan, I'm interested in some sort of nutritional counseling and becoming a birth keeper. Do you have any nutritional programs you'd recommend? And um, sorry, guys, I'm just abbreviating some of these questions. Uh, I'm pretty heavily involved with WAP. I've looked at the Nutritional Therapy Association as well. Thanks again for your writing. Um, <clears throat> Hannah, when I did my uh, nutrition um, counseling program, uh, it was the Registered Nutritional Holistic Nutritionist Program uh, here in Canada. And... Um, I was already quite involved as well, like you said, in Weston A. Price. So I was really kind of mm, not too sure about doing it because I wasn't sure how much I would resonate. And I was worried they would tell me that I had to tell clients to be vegans and stuff like that. But um, mine was the uh, RNCP program. And it was actually pretty good at the time. I'm not sure what it's like now. This was 
way, maybe 14 years ago or so. I'm not sure how that is now. And then after I did that, I did a mentorship with a sports nutrition program for a couple of years, uh, which I think was actually um, really excellent to have done as well. Um, that's just where my interest was at the time. But so I've done the holistic nutrition and sports nutrition. And I would say, you know, honestly, just I'd look at the curriculum of whatever's available, see what resonates with you the most. But I think that what we bring into these things and our voice um, is really infinitely more important than whatever the curriculum is going to give you. You know, the curriculum will give you a a title or some sort of legitimacy maybe. Um, but I think really what it comes down to is what you have to offer more than anything. Um, and then from that question, uh, you were, there was a little thread that developed about becoming a birth keeper. Gosh, I love that word. I, birth keeper, isn't that be a free birth society? I had heard about the Free Birth Society about a year ago, and wow, I'm just, it's just beautiful. So anyways, um, there was some comments from other people about that, and oh, I just love that. I was, um, I, I would love to be able to find a way for us to sort of expand these threads and and share these things and talk amongst each other too. So maybe that's something we can do as all this unfolds. We'll see. Um, the next question is from Cassandra. Uh, she said that she was reading parts of the book Childbirth Without Fear by Grantley Reed. And uh, it says, apart from the conclusion, apart, not a part, apart from the conclusion reads, your shield and buckler will be hard work and quiet determination. Resolve to be patient, for by the results of your work you will be known. Men often value themselves by what they know they can do, forgetting that the world only values them by what they have done. It's uh, so beautiful. Thanks, Cassandra, for sharing that. And she just wrote, um, such a good reminder. It's great to think deeply about life, but it's important not to dream your life away. Especially in this technocratic world, it's easy to ignore the practical, i.e. the real parts of life. Um, that's what I admire about you so much, Tara. Mm -hmm. The way that you share your life via words and pictures paints a clear picture of the life that's possible. Like a lighthouse, I'm able to see clearly where I'd like to go. I think the most noble thing that we can do is put as much energy as possible into becoming the person that we'd like to see more of in this world. It's beautiful and I completely agree. With this said, especially considering that I don't have Instagram and I'm, am unable to see your posts there, the topics I'd like to see here include what you eat in a day with pictures. Okay, I can do that. Natural home care and building practices. I can do that too. I have written about that. And by the way, I'm glad you're not on Instagram as much as I love reaching people there. I like it here so much better. Um, natural home care and building practices, I will do a whole post on that because uh, I'm really very, very passionate about that. I think that people overlook it or maybe assume you've got to rip your house down to the studs so they just don't even want to look into it. But I think there's incremental things that we can all do to make our 
our uh, environments healthier. Um, just as a little note on that. So our two um, daughter daughters are, my oldest daughter is actually living out of motels because she's a millwright and she's working in Northern Ontario. And the only place to sleep there is a motel. So she's in this crummy motel with bad air quality and fluoridated chlorinated water. So, um, you know, when she goes up there, I guess we could kind of throw our hands in the air and, you know, the place is gross and that's that. But she actually, um, what she does is she travels with a water filter uh, for the shower that she puts on the shower so that water doesn't have to touch her skin. She doesn't have to breathe it in when she's in the shower. She, she just unscrews the shower head and puts this one on. And then she has her Berkey water filter that she brings with her. She also takes a couple 18 gallon uh, water jugs from us here because we have beautiful water on the farm. Um, but she has her Berkey water filter for when she runs out. And then she has a little air purifier uh, for her hotel room. And she brings her um, Instapot to cook in and she has a little fridge. So she's got her food taken care of um, and her water is good. The air is as good as she can get it with her air filter. And um, yeah, so I mean... But my point is that there's little things that we can do no matter, you know, and it, I mean, that's on the go in a, in a highway hotel. So there's, there's always things that we can do. Maybe things won't be perfect, but there's still stuff we can do. Um, but I will talk about sort of where we are and the things that we've done and I've learned for sure. I'll, I'll do posts on that. Um, and then uh, just the last three things that Cassandra was saying were, was uh, practical productivity tips um, bullet journal, bullet journal, bullet journal. I cannot live without my bullet journal. I've spoken about that before and I will speak about it again. My daily routine. Uh, okay. I can do that too. And a life without screens, cell phone. Uh, okay. I can do a life managing screens, uh, without screens. That one's going to be harder because I'm sitting here reading off the screen right now. Um, but I can talk about how we try and control that. Um, okay, Cassandra, hopefully that you're willing to be a little patient with me on the other stuff. Um, Vanessa says, I value your consciousness as well as the words you use to express said consciousness. I think there were so many places to land in this pattern of life and still keep it honest and helpful. And I know we all plug in where and how we plug in. And that informs a lot of postures that we take. I think the most valuable thing for me to hear more about from you is your relationship with impermanence, death and fear. My prayers and my energy are with you in solidarity. Um, thank you, Vanessa. Uh, see, you guys asked such beautiful thoughtful questions I'm just so moved by you all um my relationship to impermanence is the thing that has brought peace in my life I had a lot of weird little things when I was younger you know um when my parents <clears throat> 
um, split up and, um, well, we used to live in the country and our house burnt down and we moved to the city and my parents split up. That all sort of happened in one year. And I think that sort of shook me as a young kid, my, my foundation. And, um, I used to be so, I became so afraid of death. I, every time my mom left, I was sure she was going to die. I would like fret about it. I would think about it. It was really not, a healthy state. Um, but I didn't know how to express that. I, I didn't even know what was going on. But it that's sort of, you know, you, you don't have those things as children, they just disappear one day, it sort of lingered with me. And it was from going into that and really just having to, to saturate myself with those feelings and not run away from them every time they came up, which is how I managed them for the first decades of my life. But to carry out and allow those feelings to play out in their entirety. You know, I think a lot of times we get these feelings and we start imagining and and things can sort of turn into this whirlwind of oh what if that would happen then it gets so overwhelming that we just shut it down but um there was a point where I stopped shutting it down I let these these feelings just play out in their entirety no matter how painful it got I promised myself I wouldn't turn away from it and um that's hard it's it's retraining our brains and retraining um, our very selves to handle these um, hard feelings um, before they actually come up. Um, but that changed everything. It really did. I, I've sat with that and let those feelings sort of ride over me and overwhelm me. And then I got up. And I continued on. And I I think that when we don't run away from things, that's what we find out. We build our resilience and we see, you know, I'm still here. I'm still breathing. Um, so when I write about, like, death, I think that's really what I'm talking about is, is that um, acknowledgement of the impermanent and how if things are not permanent, they have to be valued all that much more. And that's what we've lost by, by not acknowledging death and fear and these feelings that are not happy, Pollyanna kind of stuff. <laughs> we've lost the authenticity in our lives. And that authenticity is a deepness of appreciation and love and fear and and worry and all those things but you don't get anything wholly unless you take it all so i will continue to write about that vanessa and hopefully my writing is more flushed out than my brain speaking thanks for your question um so logan says um no question um just wanted to say admire your writing my confidence and stuff thank you logan i i really appreciate that compliment um 
Christine says that she's not asking for medical advice, but they live on a 10 acres in an area locally dubbed Copperhead Alley. I didn't know what she was talking about when I read this. And Christy I says that Copperhead snakes are everywhere. Um, this is so interesting. So, Christy, we do not have lethal snakes where I live. Hallelujah. Uh, uh, hallelujah, because one, I love snakes. And if I can catch one, I'm still going to catch one and have a little conversation with it before I set it free again. But I would not be catching a copperhead snake, obviously. Um, so the question was, if you or a loved one was bitten by a venomous snake, how would you treat it? Let's imagine we're in a time when we are barred from entry into modern medical facilities. I'm going to just pause for a second and say, yes, let's imagine we're in a time when we are barred from entry into modern medical facilities with everything. In fact, let's just assume there's no modern medical facilities that will be available. And so what are we going to do about anything, not just the snakes? I'll get back to the snakes, Christy. But I think that all of us right now need to be developing skills of all sorts. And those skills involve medical skills. <laughs> so uh, I think that we should all be learning how to suture skin. I think that we should have a good little herbal pharmacy in our cupboards that can be used for both um, health, you know, building our health, building our bodies as allies to make us as vibrant as possible. And also things that we can be using for washes, for first aid type things. Um, so... I hope that everybody is sort of starting maybe or has looked into that sort of thing as well because I think that these skills, you know, not only to feed ourselves and to, um, you know, take care of things like our energy needs, um, all those sort of things that people are starting to consider. I hope that also this time of unease shall we say is a great time to uh, for us to be reminded that we also need to take back some of our um, knowledge and our skills and our connection to the plant medicines around us and what that looks like where you live is very different than from where I live but it's all of the same um, so I can talk about that more too. I can write about if anyone's interested in sort of just what our first aid kit looks like, um, things that we've done uh, in order to, I mean, I obviously have a bonus of having a ER physician as my man. So, <laughs> um, but you know, I have to know some of these things too. So 
I think that's something that we should all be taking on right now. And Christy, I am sorry that I do not know um, about the venomous snake, how I would treat it. But I know if I did live in a place that had venomous snakes, I would be doing a bunch of different things to figure that out. So I'd figure out how it's treated if if there is something that you like a medication that's given as an antidote, I would figure out a way to get my hands on it and just have some lying around the house. If there's I'd research what they used to do for it, I'd research, uh, talk to old timers, I would talk, I would read um, some books, some old books, a lot of the farming knowledge that we've uh, been able to collect has been from really old books. I mean, we're talking pre-industrialization so that we could see, well, before, you know, fossil fuels and grain was so abundant, how did they used to do this? It's almost impossible to find that information now, but you got to do a lot of research around it. So I'm sorry, I don't know the specific answer to what I would do about the copperhead bites. um, But that would be my recommendation for you. Um, We'll just do one more uh, question here, because as I said, this is one long run through and it's now time for me to get outside and do chores. Uh, So this is from Danae. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, And Danae says, I get so excited when I see the email telling me you have a new post up for my question. I remember you mentioning your rabbit colony experiment a while back and method of ensuring a certain canine didn't continue calling the baby buns. (laughs) It's funny, I was just telling that story to a a young girl that lives in our neighborhood that comes and does chores with me in the evening. She's such a, it's been such a delight to have her here. She comes in the evening, she's 11 years old, and she comes riding over on her quad, and, and we do chores together, and I point out certain things, and anyway, um, Yes. <clears throat> she said, um, are you still doing the colony system or am I doing something else? Um, okay. So the meat rabbits, when we first started with meat rabbits, um, I never did like this stacking of cages that they couldn't even stand up in. That wasn't going to happen for us. So we, um, built a bunch of rabbit hutches that were on the ground and we moved them around uh, Joel Salatin kind of has a setup like that, but I think our rabbit hutches were nicer. Uh, they were higher and bigger. Um, and then in one end of the hutch, we built a little, you know, enclosure with a little hole in it so they could go on there and do their burrowing rabbit thing that they like to do. So we did that and we moved them daily, sometimes twice a day, uh, when the grasses were really growing quickly. Um, those did not work for us for a few reasons. Uh, one of the reasons was that we, well, (laughs) I'll tell you the evolution. So one of the, at first we did it that way. Then we had to put, uh, some, we call it hardware cloth here. I think it has different names, but it's like a, a grid of metal, um, on the bottom of the cages, um, because the rabbits were, we have very, very, very uneven ground here. Uh, and there's, you know, we're on the Canadian shield. So it's rolling ground, it's got rock in some places, it's up, it's down, it's all over the place. So there's nothing you cannot find a flat piece of, of 
earth around here for the life of you. So um, without the bottom on it, the rabbits were burrowing out and escaping. So that didn't work. So then we put the bottom, the hardware cloth on the bottom. Um, but then when we would move the hutches, um, it would smush down the grasses in a way that the rabbits couldn't quite get at them as well. So then we had to start supplementing, going around and picking various field grasses all around them to bring to them and then still move them. Um, and then that just, it, it got to the point where I wasn't happy with the amount of um, free pasture field uh, grasses that they were getting. And so I was constantly... Uh, adding and supplementing with all the variety that I was seeing all around me that I couldn't get their hutches into. So there was, you know, there'd be all sorts of legumes, there'd be all sorts of wild herbs growing. And, you know, I'd slide them over on their patch, and they would maybe have one or two of those things. And so I was constantly going around with buckets and getting this variety so that they could really have be healthy and have access to all these wonderful things growing around us. And then it just got to the point where it was like, this is just not even making sense anymore. So we ended up parking those um, rabbit hutches, uh, which again, aren't the little square cages, but like these big houses that we were dragging around, we ended up just parking them in a more shady area because that was another problem is just the we get incredibly hot and humid summers and um, I had to not only be cognizant of where I was moving uh, the hutch for their food access but also how the sun was shining in and and uh, heating them up I had to be careful with that too so I was like bringing wood around with me and leaning it up to create a shade around the the hutch and stuff. So it just became um, a really <clears throat> big part of my day moving them and then going and collecting the feed anyway. So then we parked them. And um, then we ended up elevating them about a foot off the ground so that we could collect the poop from underneath them. And uh, that's what we did. So that worked. Uh, okay. I still was going around with my buckets as part of my chores twice a day and collecting all the different types of twigs and legumes and wild flowers and wild uh, herbs and grasses and all the things that make healthy rabbits healthy rabbits. And um, then from there, we decided to try the colony system, which is taking them out of the cages entirely. And in our case, we put them in a big open area of our barn that um, that was built up with a bunch of wood chips so that they could burrow. And then we put some old flue pipes in there that are made of terracotta. And so we could like put little tunneling systems in there and those terracotta pipes underneath the shavings stayed quite cool and kind of warm in the winter. And that actually worked pretty good. Um, I, I actually like that system quite a bit. Uh, you would get some rabbit fights. We'd still have to keep the buck separate unless, yeah, that things would get a bit out of control. So we had to control it to some degree. 
Um, but for us, it was just a matter of infrastructure. We don't had we did that chunk of the barn being dedicated just to that meant that when the winter came and uh, we had to bring the ducks in from the pond so they didn't get eaten when the pond freezes and then our geese and then our turkeys and then our chickens we already have to separate those the chickens and the turkeys from the ducks and the geese so we lost that space to the rabbits and it just made uh, everything else a little too limited so anyway this is a very long answer but um, it's how things evolve always I guess Um, so From there, we decided there was a couple escapees, as there always is, that got underneath the old barn boards and went about living around the barn. They never really went out into the forest or anything. They still stayed close to the barn, and they ended up having their babies. And all of a sudden, you know, we'd go outside, and where there was two or three rabbits, there was suddenly a whole bunch of rabbits, and everything was going really well we were so surprised um there was little rabbits to be had when we wanted to harvest a rabbit we could simply take the 22 from afar and harvest a rabbit and they were foraging on their own um we thought that we had um really hit pay dirt it was going really well And we thought, well, why didn't we do this all along? And then we found out why we didn't do this all along, because all it takes is one little predator to figure out that there is a bounty to be had and all the fun is over. And that's what happened. One by one, uh, either a fox or a coyote uh, came in and the rabbits started dwindling. And then before we knew it, they were all gone. So um, as wonderful it would be, and if we didn't have predators, I would just let them run around the barn and do their thing and harvest them with a 22. But that is not the way they're to be. So um, back to the drawing board. Um, The colony system, yes, works for us until the time when we need to bring the animals up to the barn for the winter and then we're getting to limited space. So uh, every farm is different and what the infrastructure is and what the setup is and one farm is so different than the other and anyone that tells you that they have the answer is full of BS. So you know it's just it's always an evolution for us. We're constantly observing and asking questions and trying something new and seeing how it goes and that's what I would say. And that's what I would recommend um, to you is just, you know, trying things, trusting your gut. And yeah, um, hopefully that's helpful, Denise. My chores are calling and we're at the 46 minute mark. And I'm sure you all have things to get to as well. I'm ending on my last question the next question is by nikki and i hope in the next couple days to get around to um answering another little batch of questions here and in you know maybe over the next few weeks i can learn how to um podcast so i can pause this and come back to it and maybe be a little more articulate but i hope that is helpful 
I hope that this was meaningful in some way. And um, I can hear my two little calves bawling at me because they want their alfalfa. And so I must depart. Thank you all again for your wonderful questions and for coming over here and being with me and reading what I share. It is truly, I am so touched by, by this, the communication that we get to share and just this little space. It feels, it just feels so nice. It's just so, it's so different than, you know, Instagram. And I know I've met many of you over there and many of you come from there, but there's just, I have such a different feeling when I go on to, onto this place and read your comments. And it's just so different from when I'm over on Instagram and um, I'm just excited by it. I'm excited by, by being here and that you're here with me. And yeah. So I, I hope that this was okay, (laughs) but it it helped with something and uh, we will, I will talk again and maybe we'll actually talk again together sometime. Okay, bye-bye.